welcome to the St. Peter Institute podcast. I have my guest here today, the Director of Biblical Apologetics with the St. Peter Institute, Luke Lancaster. Good evening, Luke. Good evening, Marcus. So today we decided to talk to all of you about the concept of uh, the primacy of St. Peter uh, amongst the apostles and at large to discuss the doctrine of the papacy. So we're going to be starting with having Luke give us a brief walkthrough of what are some of the biblical texts we'll be looking at today and, and what's their significance. Just a very brief overview of each of these texts before we take a look at what some common Protestant objections are to the papacy. Yeah, thank you, Marcus. I'd say that the top three uh, texts that people are going to be thinking about when it comes to papal primacy, when it comes to Peter being the first pope. Uh, first one will be Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. That's where Jesus in the Gospels takes all 12, all 12 apostles over to Caesarea Philippi, which is a town within Israel. And within that town, uh, it's got this massive rock structure. The rock is probably like 200 feet wide, uh, 50 to 100 feet high. Um, and it, he asks the question, he just points it straight all, at all the apostles. Who do men say that I am? No, who am I? And uh, they're all given various names that, you know, some people say you're John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. Um, he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says that you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him and says, just as you just defined me, like you know, Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. Jesus turns around and points to Peter and says, I tell you, you are Peter. You are rock. Like his name's always been Simon. Now he's changed his name to Peter and says, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. But if you loose on earth, it will be loosed in heaven. That passage is very key. Uh, we think about all the different ways that it's been interpreted. But in particular, like nowadays, like within the past probably fifty, probably about fifty years, we've had a ton of biblical commentaries that have really been crystallizing on one particular interpretation of that, and that is that when Jesus says, "You are Peter, you're you're the rock, and I build my church, and I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven," that idea of keys, the kingdom of heaven, ties in with Isaiah chapter twenty-two where Isaiah is a prophet, he speaks the words of God. God speaks through Isaiah and says that I'm going to be uh, giving this one guy, his name is Eliakim, the key of the house of David. So the kingdom of David, he's got a guy within his kingdom that has keys. And that's what Jesus is referring to when he says to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of my kingdom. So that's one text. That text is really key. The next text would be, uh, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. And that text is after the resurrection. So Jesus has already suffered. He's died. He, you know, Peter denied him. And then Jesus comes back to life and appears to Peter and appears to all of the apostles and appears to Mary Magdalene, etc. Um, and at this point, uh, Jesus is having breakfast early in the morning. And Jesus says to Peter, so he says to, you got the 12 apostles here, they're all having breakfast on the shore. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Simon, son of John, 
do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Uh, this is after Peter's already denied him three times. So he's asking him, like, do you not like, reaffirm your love, reaffirm your commitment here? Uh, Simon, son of God, John, do you love me more than these? What does he love him more than, though? I'd say probably like all the apostles there. Uh, so not just do you love me, like do you still love me, but do you love me more than all these apostles? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says to him, feed my lambs. What does that mean, feed my lambs? Uh, that word for feeding uh, sounds like a, a leader would do. A leader would feed somebody. A leader would support. Uh, think of like a pastor. They, uh, they feed their congregation by shepherding them, by teaching them, by loving them, by being there for them. The question would be, though, is who are those lambs? Are the lambs the apostles? Or are they just one little group of Christians? Or is it like the whole church? That's where the idea of papal primacy would come in, because if, if those lambs are the apostles, then that would mean like, he's saying to Peter, feed my lambs. like lead my sheep like lead you know these disciples here uh, that would be like what a pope does like they lead their pope means father like they father the other bishops they father the whole church and the final one we're going to consider is uh luke chapter 22 luke chapter 22 verses 31 through 32 this is right before the death of jesus this is during the last supper and during it uh, they're all having this final meal together, and Jesus looks at Peter. Again, he's always looking at Peter. He's seeing this, saying something profound. Looks at Peter and says, Behold, Satan demanded to have you. You, though, here, you is plural. So he's saying, Simon, Simon, looking at Peter and saying, Simon, Simon, Satan wants to like, change everybody. He wants to make everybody go crazy and move in this direction, and make everybody like not be that united whole that they are as the you know, 12 apostles. Satan wants to destroy that because Jesus founded that. Satan's against Jesus and he wants to destroy anything that he has. But like in order to make sure that that doesn't happen, to make sure that Satan doesn't destroy what Jesus set up here with his 12 apostles, he looks to Simon. And he says, Simon, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. Simon's going to be the one whose faith isn't going to fail because Jesus prayed for him. And that although he's going to make a mistake and going to deny Christ, he's going to be the one who turns back and strengthens the brethren. That's something that is really profound. It's something that the leader of the apostles will be doing. That's the papacy. Okay, thank you very much for that. So that's a fantastic overview of uh, everything we'll be discussing today. Uh, before we launch into that, I just I, I just like to present a couple of Protestant objections against the papacy at large, but particularly focusing on the person of Peter. The reason for this is multifold. One of which is you already know this, Luke. Uh, being a Protestant convert, a lot of these arguments were arguments I myself used, and it was really in studying sacred scripture within context and reading the early church fathers that I came to realize that the position of the Catholic Church is not a novel position. This is the position of Christianity from the time Christ founded the Christian community. So some of these arguments are circular, they are repetitive, but they point towards different facets of the same issue. 
first and foremost, uh, this declaration that Peter was really just a first amongst equals and that all of the apostles possessed the same level of authority as does every elder or every Christian within a Christian community. And, and this was a common objection that, that we put forth as uh, anti-Catholic Protestants before this. One of the bases of this is to argue that whatever Peter possessed was what every Christian possesses in authority. And because of that, Peter never actually possessed some level of the supremacy or primacy amongst the other apostles. Uh, and, and why this is crucial is because when you take a look at all the scripture, you don't see that Christ is actually saying, and I'm electing you, Peter, to be entirely separate amongst all of your other brethren. Well, it's not worded that way, but and, and you will take us through that in a bit. The second objection would be the, the common objection when we take a look at Matthew chapter 16. So you, as you mentioned, you've got this great confession of faith. Jesus looks at them and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter says, you call me Christos, I call you Petros. You call me Christ, I call you Peter. Uh, for Protestants, when we take a look, when I used to take a look at this text, it wasn't so much Peter that Christ was pronouncing as Christ-like or rock-like. It was really Peter's confession. It was the confession of Peter that Christ was declaring a rock. And this is the kind of solid foundation upon which the faith of a Christian should stand, that kind of a confession in Jesus Christ. Some, however, would go so far as to say that it's not just the confession, it's a Peter-like faith. The problem is with these two is that we've seen Peter falters, which is my next argument. One of the reasons why uh, Peter's faith and confession doesn't quite stand in this regard is because Peter as a character in Scripture, this is a common Protestant uh, objection, his character is, is, is frail. His character is prone to falling. Even after this entire conversion experience with Jesus Christ and, and being filled with the Holy Spirit, we see Paul writing about him in Galatians chapter 2 that he had to rebuke Peter when Peter came to Antioch because it was a genuine character flaw. Peter knew that salvation was also for the Gentiles, but when he was amongst the Gentiles with other Jews, he refused to intermingle with the Gentiles. And Paul had to call him to task on this. So, uh, and so some fallbacks to that then would be, it's not really Peter who's the rock. Scripture really tells us Christ is the true rock. And there's this linguistic interplay. You are Petros, and upon this Petra, you are this uh, small rock. And upon this large rock, Jesus Christ, I'll build my church. But we don't have to go into that in detail. But it's, uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So when Paul makes that kind of a distinction for a Bible-believing Protestant, that's a done deal. The rock is Christ. It's, it's not really Peter. Uh, and, and as was mentioned, Peter's incessant failure of character, but, but also this regard, this name of the office of papacy. Christ never said, I am establishing an office that will be called the papacy. Well, I mean, there's a lot that Christ never said explicitly that way. So that's a poor argument, but it is an argument that's used. Uh, Peter, on his hand, if you take a look at both of his epistles, he doesn't seem to, pro to proclaim over himself a kind of primacy over the apostles. In 1 Peter 5, he calls himself a witness, like everyone else, and a fellow elder amongst everyone else. 
He doesn't elevate himself to a level of primacy. So that's another contention. Gita never claimed a place of primacy in his writings. And lastly, this whole thing of binding and loosing that we see in Matthew 16, Jesus repeats this promise to the apostles in Matthew 18, 18. He tells all of the apostles, you'll get the power to bind and to loose. So these are the common objections that are presented when we talk about Peter and the papacy. And for those of you listening to this podcast, don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed when you hear these objections. There are some very sound scriptural truths that will be able to demonstrate to you with confidence that Peter is indeed the rock upon which Christ built his early church. And that after this and following podcasts, we can talk about the concept of apostolic succession. But at this juncture, I would like to turn the microphone over to Luke. And Luke's going to walk us through these key texts that establish the primacy of Peter amongst the apostles. And we're going to focus really upon the person of Peter and, and how these texts emphasize his role as Pope among them. Yeah, exactly. So starting with Matthew 16, um, I love that phrase where he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Like We know that Jesus is the, the new Messiah. He's the, the new Davidic king. You know, like when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, so like, you're going to give birth to a male child. You're going to, you're going to give birth to this child. He's going to be of the house of David. He's going to be of that lineage, like David, his father, uh, because Joseph was, you know, of his lineage. And so Jesus is the son of Joseph. So he's going to be in that lineage there. So he's going to be the, basically the next Davidic king and he's going to have his own king. And Matthew's very big on emphasizing that throughout his gospel, too, that Christ is the new Davidic king. Yeah, so, you know, um, like saying it's the new Davidic kingdom. Um, and, you know, the angel Gabriel says that he's going to have a kingdom that's going to be eternal. Uh, it's, he's going to have this eternal kingdom on earth. Um, so this is the, the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to give you, Peter, the keys of this kingdom of heaven. My kingdom here, I'm going to give you the keys to it. Well, what does that mean, like? Uh, that doesn't make any sense. Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, keys to what? You know, what does that have to do with anything? Um, and that's the way that I've always read them. Like, what, what does he mean there? What we've uh, we found those the last fifty years or so. Um, there's been a ton of Bible translations and a ton of Bible uh, commentators trying to understand their like, what does this mean? The keys of the kingdom of heaven, and they've all pretty much like. They wrapped their heads around a pretty solid consensus, I'd say. Um, actually, this one, um, these two commentators, actually, uh, Albright and Mann, um, they're the people who wrote the Anchor Bible for the Gospel of Matthew. They said that um, Isaiah 22, verse 15, undoubtedly lies behind this saying. So what they're saying here is that it's like it's not even a, a doubt anymore. Like, pretty much. The keys of the kingdom have to do with the Davidic kingdom. And whenever Jesus is the new Davidic king. So the Davidic kingdom in Isaiah 22, whenever Isaiah is a prophet, he's speaking the words of God. Isaiah says to this, uh, the current Davidic king during his time period, you know, this hundreds of years ago, hundreds of, hundreds of years before Jesus came. Um, he talks about Hezekiah. He's the current Davidic king. And he's got a minister in his kingdom. And he's this minister is a guy who's got the keys to that palace, the keys of his kingdom. 
So the keys of the Davidic kingdom. This guy's name is Shebna. So if you look over at Isaiah 22, verse 15, um, you hear him talking about Shebna. You hear him talking about uh, how Shebna is actually a really problematic guy. He's got a lot of issues. He's being very dishonest and not a not a good um, prime minister. He's not being a good minister in the kingdom. The guy who's holding the keys, not doing well. And that God is going to take the key from him. He's going to give it to Eliakim. What's key there, though, is that basically like this idea of giving the keys to somebody. Jesus is kind of like quoting that passage, if you will, where he's saying like, hey, I'm the new Davidic king. And in my kingdom, I'm going to give the keys to this person, Peter. And now the question, though, is like, oh, this minister, like, give us the background. Like, who, like, the guy who holds the keys, what does he do? The guy who holds the keys is like, back in those days, there was literally like a two by four, like big keys he'd hold over his shoulder. Like, he walked through town with these keys. Everyone's going to know who he is. He's the guy, like, the right hand man of the king. And he's the guy who would open the city gates. All right. So he was, he was, he'd open the city gates. He was the, like, kind of like a chief of staff of the White House, where he'd be overseeing the affairs of the whole palace, how everything is running and going, kind of like second in command. And actually, like, if the if the king actually went to go somewhere, if the king, like, you know, went to go fight a battle against somebody else and left his kingdom, he'd leave the right-hand man there to, you know, run things. You know, kind of like at my own church, St. Francis Cabrini, you've got Father David, who's the pastor. Uh, but he doesn't have to be there all the time because he's got a parish manager. She's overseeing everything and organizing, and making sure everything's going smoothly and are running well because she shares the same mindset as he does. So that's uh, that's kind of the idea there of the, the prime minister. And also notice that word prime, meaning head, like the leader of the minister. Just as like in our day and age, we have the White House, we have uh, like a chief of, we got the chief of staff. We also have like the cabinet a bunch of people that are very close to the president there it's kind of the same idea there like there's multiple ministers but one of them is prime so the guy in hezekiah's kingdom the guy who spoken about in isaiah 22 that guy eliakim he's got the key of the house of david he's overseeing everything actually if we analyze isaiah 22 speaks about how he has his own um, sash he has his own robe. He has his own office, and he's placed like a peg, like a sh- like a peg that's fit surely in place. That's going to be firm and not going to be moved. It's just a stable rock type of thing. That's really intriguing because what did Jesus say to Peter? You are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Uh, so like he's kind of giving that same idea there of like Jesus is giving the keys just as uh, God is giving the keys to Eliakim in Isaiah 22. Just as he was a stable force for the kingdom, he had kept everything running smoothly. He was overseeing everything. He's the right-hand man for the king. Same thing with Jesus, giving the keys to Peter. So if this is the case, and it's like, wow, sounds like the Pope, doesn't it? Sounds like the leader like if he's the chief of staff type of position, if he's got the keys managing the kingdom, that's really where we kind of get this idea of the Pope, the person who has the keys of the kingdom. And I want to look at this, the, the fact that he gave the keys 
it's uh, back in uh, Isaiah 22 when he gave the keys to Eliakim. He was taking it from Shebna and giving it to Eliakim. The same kind of thing is occurring with Jesus. Jesus is actually taking the keys from somebody and giving it to Peter. You know who he's giving it to? He's giving it to Peter, but who is he taking it to? Taking it from? He's taking it from the Pharisees. If we look at, uh, for example, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, no, not chapter 12, chapter 11, verse 52 through 54. In there he says, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak of many, uh, many things, lying in wait for him to catch it, to catch it, and something he might say. Unquote. So, with this, like the key of knowledge, uh, actually, I remember reading John Calvin say that when Jesus was giving the keys to Peter, like that's the same type of keys that the Pharisees held, uh, which is is kind of true, not totally true but um like the pharisees kind of hold the keys of knowledge and they also hold the keys of the temple we read about in first chronicles 9:27 uh it speaks about the priests having the keys to the temple the priests they're kind of like in units and they take care of the temple they'd be ministering and serving the temple uh, all underneath the high priest of course but these are all these priests and they Whenever they um, like finished their shift and were giving it over to the next shift, they symbolized that by giving keys, keys to the temple. So the temple had keys. So like the keys are being moved from one person to another, and the people that are overseeing the temple and are acting as priests, the authority as priests, that's kind of tied in with, with this idea of the keys as well. And so just as... God takes the keys from Shebna and gives it to Eliakim, Isaiah 22. So Jesus takes the keys from the Pharisees, the priests, and gives it to Peter. But all of this is kind of like, all these images of keys are what Jesus is getting at when he says to Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. And this, these ideas here of Jesus, Jesus giving the keys to Peter with the same idea of being the prime minister from Isaiah 22. Like, like I said earlier about how so many biblical scholars are saying that exact thing, that these keys of the kingdom really are making Peter the prime minister. So the question then becomes like, well, uh, if he's the prime minister, like, how is that any different from the Pope? <laughs> you know, the Pope is the person that's overseeing everybody, who is the person who it's supposed to be the servant of servants, the person who's serving everybody else, the chief teacher. He's the, the priest that is overseeing everybody, like the kind of like the high priest. Not He's obviously not the high priest because Jesus is the high priest, but he's closely associated with the king. So that just as like the king would go off and fight a war and he'd leave the, the chief of staff, the guy with the keys, overrunning everything. So Peter, the pope, is kind of like that person who's like, kind of like high priest as well who's got the keys there with this image of priesthood and also this image of managing and this image of teaching as well, being 
the chief teacher of all the apostles. Let's read some of the, the quotations that a lot of biblical scholars are saying. For example, F.F. Bruce is a, a strong evangelical. He wrote a book called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. He says, what about the keys of the kingdom? The keys of a royal or noble establishment were entrusted to the chief steward or major domo. These are just different words for prime minister, chief steward, major domo. He carried them on his shoulder in earlier times, and there they served as a badge of the authority entrusted to him. I was talking about Albright and Mann, where they also talk about how Isaiah 22, 15, undoubtedly behind, lies behind this saying. So the saying of Jesus giving the keys of the kingdom to Peter, undoubtedly they're saying, that's referring to you know, Hezekiah, the Davidic king, and Shebna and Eliakim from Isaiah 22 of the transferring of keys, that position of prime minister or like a chief steward or major domo. That's undoubtable. That's really kind of like the consensus of biblical scholars nowadays. I can keep going through a whole list of them. You'll see this in an article that we'll be posting very soon. People like R.T. France, he's an Anglican evangelical a Bible commentary. People like Oscar Coleman, he's a Lutheran biblical scholar. Got um, Eugene Boring, who's a, a Disciples of Christ biblical scholar. So that's another denomination. You got Richard Gardner, who's a a brethren or Mennonite commentator. You got Joachim Jeremiah, a Lutheran commentator. We got Edward Schweizer, a Presbyterian Reformed commentator. We got David Guthrie and others. They all kind of joined together in the new Bible commentary talking about the keys of the kingdom. The phrase is almost certainly based on Isaiah 22, 22. For Shebna, the steward, is displaced by Eliakim, and his authority is transferred to him. We've got George Buttrick and others in another commentary. Like All these guys, they just keep saying over and over and over again that Peter's given the keys of the kingdom, and these keys are the same keys from Isaiah 22, that the keys symbolize authority, they symbolize an office, they symbolize a position. And that's what Jesus is giving to Peter, like in front of all the 12. They're all there at Caesarea Philippi. He says, Peter alone, you are Peter. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So that's Matthew 16, keys of the kingdom. It's particularly about there. And now we can move on to another passage, John 21. So we're looking at John 21. Verses 15 through 19. And this one really fascinating because, like I said earlier, when trying to describe it, you've got Jesus saying, in front of, again, all the apostles there, they're all sitting there having breakfast. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Kind of like setting the stage here where, like, do you love me more than these apostles here? He's like, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus is like, feed my lambs. Kind of setting the stage there, like, you love me more than all of these? Feed my lambs. Feed all of my lambs that are right here. Just as I gave you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, who's going to be like managing the affairs and like going to be running things when he goes, 
this, he set out this authority and structure. You're going to be running things. Make sure you're feeding my lambs. I find that really fascinating. Feeding my lambs. And he just keeps repeating it. Simon, do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. Simon, do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. That word for tend can be translated shepherd or rule. The same kind of idea is present with, uh, with Jesus. Jesus is said to rule. He said to rule the world. For example, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, Jesus is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Jesus is the one who is the Lord and the King. He rules everybody. Same thing with Peter here. Like He seems to be like saying, tend my sheep, like the whole world. Like For example, Lutheran New Testament scholar, Joachim Jeremiah, he said, only in John 21, verse 15 through 17 which describes the appointment of Peter as a shepherd by the risen Lord, does the whole church seem to have been in view as the sphere of activity? This is from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament from Kittle and Friedrich. Think about that, like the whole church. You know, he's, feed my lambs. Like not just the apostles that are all sitting there, not just like a small group of people, like a like a pastor at the local you know Baptist church would be doing. Not just the little groups here of feeding my lambs. Not just you know being a shepherd, but being the like really being a, the shepherd. He's like the vicar, the the representative of Jesus. Jesus is going to be going away. He's going to prepare a place for them. He's going to be ascending into heaven. He's no longer be with them, but he's what. No need to fear because he's already set everything up. He knows how everything's going to run. And Peter's going to be this guy who's going to be shepherding the community. Wow. It's also like, think about um, earlier in John's gospel and John 10, verse 16. And that Jesus is described about how there's going to be one flock and one shepherd. One flock, one shepherd. We got to think about all of Christianity. We got the one flock, and there's going to be one shepherd. That's Jesus. But yet, he says later in John's gospel, here in John 21, telling Peter to tend my sheep, rule my sheep, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. It's kind of like, okay, well, how is Jesus going to shepherd the flock? And he's going to do it through Peter here. Right. <laughs> In fact, uh, one of the things this brings to mind, uh, this is an off-topic kind of an objection, but it's pretty crucial to think about. Uh, a common objection that uh, we have today amongst serious scripture scholars, especially those who identify as agnostic scripture scholars, the, the claim is that the church today at, as a whole, is, but especially when it comes to the Catholic Church, has greatly deviated from anything Jesus Christ ever intended for the church, and certainly anything Paul or Peter intended the church to become. Like There's been a significant departure from, from anything they ever intended. In fact, Jesus never foresaw that the church would, would, would come to this level. But what you're telling us right now is that, no, no, Jesus had a very clear scope in mind that he was talking about his sheep for ages to come, and he was charging them to the care of Peter and his successors. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, Jesus thought this through. He's God. <laughs> He's all powerful, all knowing. Like he knows what would happen if he just kind of like, okay, here's the apostles. So what's going to happen there? Like, oh, we're going to end up getting into arguments. There's going to be a bunch of bickering. And then there's going to be 33,000 denominations. You know, it's like it's going to go. Phew. You know, it's like if you don't have the sense of like one flock, one shepherd, I'm going to give you keys of the kingdom of heaven. Shepherd my sheep, tend them, feed them. Again, not like, you know, we've had a few popes, sadly, who did not do that very well. But ultimately, it's been very minor compared to the vast majority who have been really like servants of servants, like the servant of servants. Yeah, really but- trying to have that humble mindset of, I'm not above you. I'm the person that's here. God placed me here to serve you. I mean, as far as the poor characters, the, the scoundrels that we've had for Pope, they really numbered the handful at the most. But my goodness, when you take a look at the line of succession, we've had saints. We have martyrs. We have doctors of the church. I mean, these are men whose lives were entirely devoted to Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. In in comparison, the, the sins of the few are far outweighed by, by the glories that God worked in and through the lives of the many. So disappointing that we had some bad ones during the time of the Reformation. You know, like Martin Luther, uh, he went over to Rome when he was a friar. You know, just, you know, being an Augustinian monk, he goes over to Rome and he just saw like how much corruption was going on there. And it was just like, was so disheartening to him. Thinking about that, like, man, if there was a terrible person in office there, terrible Pope, it would be pretty discouraging to think that this is the person that's supposed to serve everybody. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it lends to a real level of scandal. Now that as, as a former Protestant, I often make jokes like, you know, if Jesus had only said, go by the Holy Spirit and make whatever decision you make, and as the Holy Spirit speaks, to each of you, so you make your faithful decisions and do whatever you want. Well, I mean, in a short time, you'd wind up with 44,000 denominations. At the same time, this, this, this horrible division of the body within the body of Christ, all those who genuinely call themselves believers in Jesus Christ. I mean, you cannot tell me Christ is pleased with this. There's no realm within which we can, when, when this, as you mentioned in John 10, Christ talks about this unicity of the body under the one shepherding of Christ and all of his appointed shepherds. Clearly, we're yeah. not living that right now. And yeah, so go on, t- tell us more about that, please. Yeah, the, the vision is really sad. It really goes against what Jesus imagined, like in John 17, where like, during the Last Supper, the last meal he's having, Jesus starts praying. He starts praying to the Father. And he starts praying, Lord, may they all be one as we are one. Like, wow. Jesus is praying that all of his disciples are going to be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. Like, have you heard of the Trinity? <laughs> like, Oh, like they are one somehow, mysteriously, mystically. 
but like they are just like they're both God, and yet they both are somehow one at the same time. But this is like such a profound, like intimate, like they are one, like the Father and the Son, Father having a Son. Like we're supposed to be that unified. Like, that's what he imagined. That's what he desired. That's what he longed for. He's saying he's praying for them. He has a very clearly drawn out, like, this is the time where we have in the Gospels of Jesus praying. And what is he praying for? He's praying that they can all be one. It's just such a scandal to the whole world. Where, like, are you sure that Jesus really, like, existed and founded the body of Christ? And, like, are you sure? Because, like, you seem to be competing against Bob down the street at his Baptist church. (laughs) You know, like what what a scandal it is to think that like like makes people not want to believe in the message of the gospel because we're not one. Yeah. And Jesus, this is exactly what Jesus prayed for, and it's not happening. And why is it not happening? Because he gave us free will. Why the heck does he give us this <laughs> terrible idea? Uh, <laughs> uh, oh yeah. yeah so, it causes a like, lot of sin, right? Free will. Okay, let's <laughs> let's let's Okay, so so uh, let, let's let's go on to the next text that you wanted to take us through. Sorry for the deviation, but thank you for that. Yeah, and this last one, uh, Luke chapter twenty-two, verse thirty-one through thirty-two. I pretty much already outlined it pretty pretty well about the whole singular versus plural. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have all of the apostles like. All of you guys sitting here having dinner with me, my last supper, my last dinner I'm going to have before I end up dying. I'm looking at you, Simon. I'm not looking at John. I'm not looking at Thomas. I'm not looking at any of the other apostles. I'm just looking at you. Like, Simon, Satan wants to have everybody here. But I'm going to pray for you. You are the one who's going to have the faith that's not going to fail. Like, I'm praying for you that your faith may not fail, and that when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. This is where we regularly see this as just like a one-time only deal. Like, Jesus, you know, prayed for him so he can strengthen his brethren so that, you know, when Jesus dies, all the apostles are going to be, like, shaken. But Peter's going to be there to the rescue. Because, of like, of course, we'd agree, like, that's a... No, that's something that's going to happen. He's going to strengthen his brethren. Jesus appears first to Peter and then to the rest of the 12. So he strengthens Peter here. He strengthens Peter there. Uh, but is it just that? Is it just at that point or is it, does that continue? Where Satan wants to have everybody, but he looks to Peter like, what's the point there? Like he's he's looking to Peter to fix him. Why isn't it that like Jesus is going to look to Thomas. I say, Thomas, Thomas, Satan demanded to have you. Like he wants to have all of these apostles here. Like that's plural there. You, uh, Satan wants to have everybody. He wants to make everybody you know, go off in different directions and just like break down this whole Christianity thing. Everything that I taught you, he wants to ruin that and end this whole church thing. He doesn't want any of this to happen. So that means the end of his own demise, the end of his own kingdom. Satan's kingdom. Uh, so he doesn't want this to happen, but you know, Thomas, I prayed for you. Now, your faith isn't going to fail. You're going to be there to strengthen your brethren. 
it's kind of like unimaginable for him to have done that in our minds because Peter is always the guy who's just leading the apostles. He's always listed at listed first in the description of all the apostles. He's the one who's given the keys, the one who speaks on behalf of everybody, the one who's supposed to shepherd them. Like it's just like so obvious, like, yeah, exactly. You know, Jesus is gonna pray for this guy. Of all the twelve, he's gonna pick Simon, he's gonna pray for him. I mean like he Jesus could have picked anybody, but like it sounds so like ridiculous for him to do that because he seems to have just set everything up of constantly picking Peter. And mm-hmm. he just looks to Peter as like this is just the obvious choice of, you know, if Satan wants to take everybody down, Peter's gonna be the one that's gonna be the, that steady rock. That's where the rock comes into place there of when you know the culture starts screaming at you that you should have abortion, women's rights, when the culture starts screaming at you, God doesn't exist, and the culture starts screaming at you that papacy doesn't exist, or that Mary really wasn't all that important, or you worship in statues, or you should have sex before marriage. No matter what it is, like there's going to be that steady rock. And that's always going to be there strengthening the brethren, strengthening the apostles. Like Jesus looks to Peter to be the leader. Take charge here. And if Peter is going to be the one who has the keys of the kingdom, or whenever keys keys were handed down, just as the, the priests would move it to one move it to one person to another, one shift. Yeah. Priests are overseeing the temple, serving the temple. And then when they're done with their duty, they get the keys to somebody else. Or when uh, God gave uh, Eliakim and Isaiah 22 the keys, like the keys keep moving, successor. Like there's a successor there. Next king, next guy with the keys. Or if that guy was still alive, probably keep going on. There was a successorship there. This is that idea of strengthening your brethren not just now but like this is a command for peter and then the guy that peter chooses to succeed him you know because like it sounds really ridiculous and pointless to only have a leader for a short time or to set all this up to give keys to the kingdom and the idea of being the shepherd the guy who's strengthening everybody i'm going to set all this up within this kingdom and then it's just like that whole idea kingdom's going to be gone as soon as peter dies and there's no pope anymore it's it's like if peter is the pope here and if peter's strengthening the brethren that idea is going to keep going but thus we've had 60 something popes 260 something successors people who have been directly chosen to succeed in that office of serving but yeah so that would conclude that my analysis of those three passages, Luke 22, John 21, and Matthew 16. Well, I mean, uh, I think just from a natural reason standpoint alone, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, If Jesus Christ was indeed establishing a kind of new Davidic kingdom, this, this Christological kingdom here on earth, and his kingdom manifests as the church on earth, that, that we'll see a kind of heavenly manifestation in the new Jerusalem then it would make sense that he continues to ordain and establish uh, prime ministers to continue his ministry on, uh, in this kingdom on earth 
until he comes again, until the king comes back. And when he comes back, he will give to each what is his due. So, yeah, I think this is a, as good a time as any to just conclude this analysis. On behalf of the St. Peter Institute, I'm Marcus Peter, president of the St. Peter Institute for Scripture and Evangelization. I've been talking to Luke Lancaster, director of biblical apologetics for the Institute. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, God bless you and keep you.